And it's called the community of the spirit and it's not what you're thinking. Okay, so you will be uh, formally told. Okay, so <laughs> community of the spirit is the topic that we're going to hopefully discuss over the next few weeks. Guys, in Matthew 16, 13, there's, uh, Jesus asks two questions. Um, um, Wayne, uh, someone was asking if we could turn up the volume on the taping a little bit because they were finding it a little difficult. Yeah. Matthew 16:13, And in Matthew 16:13, uh, Jesus asks two questions, in 13 and then in 15. The first question he asks is, um, who do people say that I am? That's the first question he asks. He's with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And then later on in verse 15, he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And guys, two important questions, huh? because um, this is how most of life is lived by us. Who do pe- people say we are? And then the second question is, who, do you, who does God say you are? Who do you say you are? Two vital questions. Huh? Because, Ryan, I'll bring it down in a little while. Because, um, who do people say I am. This matters a lot, eh? It's such a part of who you become. It's it's so definitive of your identity. Because, guys, people do say distorted things about you. Right from when you're a child, parents, in sometimes in anger, sometimes in a lack of understanding, say things about you that are distorted. People can say cruel things about you. People can say hurtful things about you. People can say things that are humiliating or embarrassing. And what it does is it strips you of your dignity and then it begins to forge in you cynicism, suspicion, defensiveness. And so by the time we grow up to be 20 or 25, you're already shaped into something you are not. That's so sad, eh? As a pastor, I can do it to you. Where my words or my approach or my attitude towards you can cultivate in you a degree of defensiveness, cynicism, suspicion. And so even as you sit in church, I shape you into something that you're not. And over a period of time, you come to church with that defensive posture. I can do that to you. Leave alone what our spouses can do to us. Leave alone what we can do to our children. Who do people say you are? It plays such an important part in your identity. Because most things people say are distorted because they don't have the right perspective, are sometimes humiliating or embarrassing, sometimes hurtful. That's how it works, guys. And it so makes up your identity. By the time you are 14 or 15, you already think who you are based on what people have told you. And yet the second question is vitally important too. Who... Does who does God say you are? Who does God say you are? Because Graham Cook said this, and I uh, I was so um, affected by this line. He says, "Your true identity is made up of how you think. Your true identity is made up of." How you think you are known in heaven, your true identity is made up of how you think you are known in heaven and who you are on earth. Your true identity is made up of how you think you are known in heaven and who you are on earth. So much matters in terms of how I think I'm known in heaven. What does the Father say about me? What does the Father think about me? How am I known in heaven? What does the Father think about what I do presently? How am I known in heaven? 
ponder on this, eh? because you'll be surprised at how this never even occurs to us. We don't think like this. And yet Jesus would have been half the man he was if he didn't have an understanding of how his father thought of him in heaven. Because he was being bombarded from all sides. Eh? Illegitimate birth. Uh, father probably dead early. Uh, righteous ways that have, must have been annoying to the local bullies. Uh, rejected by the very ones that he grew up with. First time he picks up the Torah to read, he's almost thrown over a cliff. Mother and brothers think that he's crazy. Friends abandon. Twelve disciples, one betrays him. I can go on and on. You know the whole litany. A man will not be able to survive those things if he does not know how he is thought of in heaven and who he is on earth. Develop this, regardless of how old or young you are. Because remember guys, in heaven, you are beloved, you are highly favored, you're always present before God. This is how you are in heaven. Just think of this, right now at this moment, in heaven, I am in the beloved and I am beloved by God. As in I am found in Christ the most precious, priceless thing before God. And I am in Him. So in heaven I am always beloved. In heaven I am always present before God. I am always present. I am perpetually present before God in heaven. All because of Christ. And I am highly favored in heaven. See, because I do not necessarily spend time developing the persona that I have, in heaven, I live by the defaulted, flawed personality that I have become here on earth. And so, you're constantly before God, you're always present, highly favored. This is how God sees you. Every time He talks to you guys, it'll always be in the context of how He sees you. Listen to those words. Every time God talks to you, every time God deals with you, He will always talk to you and deal with you in the context of how He sees you, not how you see yourself. Let me say that again. Every time God talks to you, He will always talk to you and look at you in the context of how He sees you, not how you see yourself. How do we talk to God? When we go to talk to God, we see ourselves a certain way. And so our entire conversation is molded by how we see ourselves. So on some days, you'll find yourself being very free with God, very joyous. And on other days, you feel like a worm. Why? Because we only see ourselves the way we see ourselves and we approach God in that same way. But remember, in heaven, you're highly favored, always present before Him, completely acceptable, beloved. And that's the only way God deals with you. This is why it's important to think how you think you are known in heaven. Begin to ponder on that. Because when we talk about the community of the Spirit, we're talking about individuals that make up that community. And we individuals have to get this part right. Because what you think about God and who you perceive He is towards you, what you think about God and who you perceive He is to you, affects your personality, affects your identity, affects your self-awareness. It does. Let me give you another sentence which is pretty strong. When you know who you are, You know how to live. When you know who you are, then you know how you are supposed to live. Then you know how you are supposed to live. When you know who you are, then you know how you are supposed to live. Both with yourself, and with others. When you know who you are, then you know how you're supposed to live, both with yourself and with others.
And here's a strange thing that will happen when this begins to happen. Other people will also recognize. Other people will recognize your identity and act accordingly with you. So, to sum it up again, who do people say I am? So affects the way I live. And usually, people, sometimes ones that are close and sometimes one that, ones that are away, usually say things that right from when we are children to when we are married and when we are close to dying, most of the things that people say are distorted, sometimes cruel, sometimes humiliating, sometimes uh, uh, hurtful. And this plays such a role in shaping who I am because it forges in me cynicism, suspicion, defensiveness. There are ways I begin to respond. It matter, affects me so badly. How do I counter it? I have to figure out who God says I am. How do I go about that? By pondering on this question, how you think you are known in heaven? If I were to ponder on that question, that how am I known in heaven? How am I before the Father? And I mentioned just three things. That I'm always before Him, perpetually before His presence. That I'm beloved, that I'm highly favored, highly accepted. And that in all His dealings with me, God deals with me as He deals with me as if I were in heaven. That's the way he deals with me. He deals with me the way he sees me. And the way he sees me is highly favored, acceptable, priceless, always before him. Beloved. So it does not matter how I see myself. It matters how he sees me. That's how he deals with me. That then begins to affect who I am on earth, guys. And when that happens, when you know who you are, you know how you are supposed to live. Your living changes. The way you behave changes the suspicion and the defensiveness begin to lower. The cynicism begins to disappear. And as you change, people begin to behave with you differently too. Because they begin to see another identity and they recognize it and they can't behave with you the way they used to behave. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You know, I saw this video that I'll play twice and I, after that the kids can go for crafts. But someone uh, suggested that I watch this video. It's, 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 it's a video for always pads. Okay, So the people who produce this video are the always the brand for feminine pads. But it's such, a, such an amazing video, man. Someone suggested that I watch it. I watched it and I thought to myself, wow. So watch it now. I'll play it twice through. It's what happens to us. Oh, don't worry about it. He didn't miss it. He didn't even know I had it. Yeah, guys, so much of who I am is influenced by others. Eh? And uh, one of the things that's gonna ha- uh, that I'm hoping I, I'm going to change in is to be careful in terms of how I treat you so that nothing that I say to you will affect you adversely. Because the pastor has tremendous influence in your life. Especially a pastor like me has tremendous influence in your life. And if I don't make sure that what I sow into your life is free of anything that will diss you or tear you down, you'll lose your defensiveness and go much further. I mean, what are the, uh, Diana, you can take the girls, um, the guys out. I'm thinking girls now after seeing that video. Um, two of the things that God says about you that. Um, you need to take to heart right now. Let, let me ask you this question, guys. Don't you aren't you affected by what your spouse has said to you? Aren't you affected by what your spouse has said to you? Hasn't that 
left such a deep impression in your life for the positive or for the negative aren't you affected by what you uh, do you think your spouse has been affected by what you've said to her tremendously it's the ones that are closer to us that have deeper impact it goes much deeper haven't the things that your parents have said to you affected you don't they affect you even today hasn't embarrassment completely changed the way you sometimes function that one embarrassing or two embarrassing incidents hasn't it completely changed the way you conduct yourself haven't you developed immense defensive structures because you're scared that you will be pulled out again and embarrassed and our levels of embarrassment vary yeah? some of you can't be embarrassed by anything some of you can be embarrassed by the very things that others would see as normal fascinating how our environment and how the people around us have so affected us this is why one of the things i have to recapture is how does god actually think of me in heaven because it's the only way to restructure who i am there's no other way guys i have so many defensive mechanisms that i probably need more than 10 fingers to count them ways that i protect myself from scoffing from scorn from being despised from handling disdain from handling criticism from being laughed at different ways i cope with it why because the one thing that perhaps i don't always focus on is how am i thought of in heaven and who am i on earth continuously compensating here are two things perhaps that you can think of uh, that god thinks of you one you are his brilliant masterpiece or i am i am ephesians 2:10 for i am god's brilliant masterpiece why brilliant because everything he does is done so brilliantly i am his brilliant masterpiece i mean job 33 verse 4 says that job 33 verse 4 says that i was created by the holy spirit and god breathed his life into me so to begin with i'm brilliantly created david talks about that in psalm 50 or psalm 139 wonderfully i was put together so there's that jacob and trust me david wasn't talking about his pancreas and his liver when he said wonderfully am i put together he was talking about his person so to begin with there's that and then i'm created anew in christ i'm a brilliant masterpiece you are a brilliant masterpiece of god you are uh, distinct more distinct than snowflakes eh they 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 write poems about the snowflake and forget you more distinct than the snowflake you're inimitable you cannot be imitated you are irreplaceable we always say everybody is replaceable no you're not you're irreplaceable irreplaceable and you are exceptional i find it so hard to come to terms with words like exceptional and irreplaceable i can sometimes handle distinct and i know i'm inimitable but irreplaceable and exceptional are not words that i connect with myself but this is but i am his brilliant masterpiece i am his brilliant masterpiece if you if you can't handle the word brilliant because it seems to put the focus on you take out brilliant i am his masterpiece inimitable irreplaceable distinct or unique exceptional every one of you every one of you another beautiful word i've found that i want to talk about more next time is 
he is the glorious inhabitant of my life. He, so we talked about you being a masterpiece. Now let's talk a little about him. He, he is the glorious inhabitant of your life. He is the glorious inhabitant. As in, not only am, am I his masterpiece, these are, I'm just giving you just two things that you can ponder on. Not only am I his brilliant masterpiece, he is the glorious inhabitant of this masterpiece. He is the glorious inhabitant of this masterpiece. So to begin with, he is the primary maker, the sustainer of this masterpiece. And then he is the glorious inhabitant of this masterpiece. Galatians 4.6 In Galatians 4.6 it says that um, because I am, because Jacob is his son, God sent the spirit of his son into Jacob's heart so that Jacob may cry out by the spirit, Abba, Father. I used to think that when I cry out, Abba, Father, it's all me. No, 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 no. Because God loves Jacob so much, God sent into Jacob his son, the spirit of his son, so that Jacob may cry out by his spirit and say, Abba, Father. I am his brilliant masterpiece and he is the glorious inhabitant of this masterpiece. John 6.63 Jesus said in John 6.63 the first part Jacob, remember this it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits for nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits for nothing. I am his brilliant masterpiece. He is a glorious inhabitant of this masterpiece through his spirit. Galatians 4, 6. God loved this son so much that he sent the spirit of his son so that this son may cry out and say, Abba, Father, by his spirit. The flesh profits for nothing. I am his brilliant masterpiece and he is the glorious inhabitant of my life. Next time, we'll talk about another word. Not only is he your glorious inhabitant, he is also your glorious inhibitor. We'll talk about it next time. But that's not for now. See what you're going to miss. I mean, Mariana would like to cancel the trip if you're willing. Guys, we're talking about the community and the spirit. Jesus, you know, when he trained his 12 disciples, he's so brilliant. He doesn't place his trust in his disciples. He trained them, but he didn't place his trust in them necessarily. He placed his trust in the coming of the Holy Spirit to do amazing work through these 12 that he had trained in lives and situations in every town, village, home and city in the world. I got to understand that over the next few weeks I am sure we'll understand that the flesh profits nothing. That the flesh profits nothing. John 6.63, the first part. I must remember what Jesus said. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus' trust was not necessarily in the disciples. He trained them and brought them to a place and then said to them, Listen, the spirit of God is going to come upon you. His trust was in the spirit that would come and transform these twelve. Hopefully at the end of this course we will learn how to trust the spirit of God for our own lives, for the lives of the ones we love, for our wives, for our husbands, for our families and for situations. I know we've occasionally touched on this whole idea of trusting the work of the spirit. It's the only hope we have, guys, that the spirit must act. Otherwise, nothing will bear change of fruit that lasts. The spirit must act. Otherwise, nothing will bear fruit or change that lasts. I have to trust the spirit of God with your life. I would like to see change in your life. In every life sitting here, if you came to me and asked me for one thing, I could give you more than one which I want to see change in your life.
As I'm sure I do, I've got 11 things for my life, at least two things for yours. But see, I've got to trust the Spirit of God because flesh profits nothing. Philippians 2.13 says that God is the one who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His purpose. Strange verse. Let me put it simply. The Spirit of God is He who brings the desire and the effort so that you can fulfill God's pleasure. The Spirit of God is He who creates the desire and then provides you with the effort required to accomplish your purpose for God. I must trust the act of the Spirit. Philippians 2.13 Philippians 2.13 I mean, I just told you that I've got these 11 areas where I know, these 11 prominent areas where I know I have to change. I can do everything I can and yet the Spirit must act. The only thing I can control is my thinking. And that too the Spirit has to replace desires. And then I can train myself consistently. But it is the Spirit that must act. Otherwise there is nothing I can do. The flesh profits for nothing. The flesh profits for nothing. The Spirit gives life. So invite the Spirit into situations guys. This is what Moses did when he stretched out his staff over the Red Sea and then said things like, stand and see the salvation of God. What was he doing there? Stretching out a staff and things are supposed to happen? The whole sea part, because the breath of God, Ruah, came forth and began to part the sea. I must trust the work of the Spirit. Flesh profits for nothing. It is the Spirit that gives life. Any fruit, any change that is permanent has to be a work of the Spirit who gives me both the desire and then gives me the effort required to bring to pass the pleasures of the Father in and through my life. I must trust the work of the Spirit to change my spouse. I must trust the work of the Spirit to change my children. Does this mean that we don't do anything? Obviously not. But there needs to be a heavy dependence on the Spirit. Because in our lives there is an assumed presence of the Spirit but there's a, a lack of an active dependence on the sheer work of the Spirit. I must trust the Spirit. I must trust Him to feed the fetus of a habit in my life. I must trust Him to cause that fetus of a habit to grow. I must trust Him to turn the fetus the right way. I must trust Him to have it now birth forth in my life. Everything is the work of the Spirit. So here are four hindrances, guys, that usually prevents the Spirit of God from doing what He wants to. I've got to get out of the way. So here are four hindrances that I want to touch on. One, four main hindrances to the work of the Spirit in my life. The first one is pride or ego. Very often my pride or my ego gets in the way of what the Spirit wants to do. My pride and my ego get in the way of what the Spirit of God wants to do. What I mean by pride and ego is, sometimes the Spirit of God wants to do a work, and I'm too proud to be foolish to do it. Because it may embarrass me. People may say stuff, so I won't do it. Sometimes he's unspectacular. Whenever I do something that is obedient, I want it to be unspectacular. I want it to be spectacular. Sometimes he's so unspectacular. Yesterday I was talking to some guys uh, in Bahrain and uh, they were on Skype and they've stood in faith for seven months and um, what they expect has not happened yet. And uh, I told them that perhaps they need to go this way and they said, no, but then people won't, uh, n- won't hear the kind of testimony that should come out of the stand of faith. Because every time we take a stand of faith, we want something spectacular to happen. Part of that is our pride, but we won't go there today. Second, sometimes guys, my pride and ego gets in the way of apologizing. You'll be surprised at how often the Spirit of God is not able to move because I can't have 
the humility to come and say to you that I was wrong and you were right. Pride gets in the way. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the pride and gives grace to the humble. He resists the pride. Apologizing is a hard thing. eh? You don't have to do something wrong. Sometimes you need to go to someone and say, you know you told me that and I resisted you. And I just want to tell you that I'm sorry. You are right and I'm wrong. Very difficult to say that. Pride gets in the way. Gets in the way of spouses. Gets in the way of friends. Thirdly, pride sometimes prevents me from acknowledging the work of others in my life. You know, I really appreciate some of you when you come and come to me and tell me, Jacob, you said this and you did this for me and it changed my life. I really appreciate it not because it stokes my ego because I think I'm past that. But I really appreciate it because it shows your heart. That you're willing to acknowledge that someone else poured into your life and you are the fruit of it. Very difficult thing this is for some of us. I still catch myself not being able to acknowledge the work of others in my life. I mean, today when I quoted Graham Cook, when I was making these notes, I was thinking, ah, don't tell them where it came from. Then I thought, no, that's a brilliant quote. If you quote it, they'll think you came up with it. Give credit, acknowledge it. Just last week, someone was saying something to me, and I realized that they had actually said this to me, but I didn't want to give them credit. So I quickly went past it, Till someone pointed out saying, Jacob, you're not willing to give credit. Some of you are brilliant at it. At coming and saying, Jacob, you did this. Or Jason, you did this. You spoke this. Or um, whoever you got something from and it changes your life. But some of us don't. Why am I bringing this up? Because not so that you can stoke my ego or Jason's ego. But so that that factor called pride may be destroyed in my life. And in your life. Because I've seen it rise up in my life. God opposes the proud. God uses people to affect our lives, guys. It's, get over this. Begin to acknowledge some of the stuff that I have done in your life, that Jason has done in your life. Come up and say it. And really not for your, not for my sake, for your sake. I'm giving you an exercise that will set you free. Because what can be more absurd than me asking you to come and tell me how wonderful I am? I mean, that is a height of arrogance and pride. And really, I wouldn't do it in a message. It doesn't come out right at all. This is to set you free. You should try it. Don't try it today. Think about it and try it over the next half of the year. Sometimes pride and ego takes a form of um, dignity instead of being transparent we are obtuse because preserving dignity is more important I've met people like this. Huh? The Spirit of God wants to do something, but because they refuse to be transparent, the Spirit of God can never end up doing what He wants because you will never open your life to anybody that the Spirit of God wants to use. The only way you will change is if a prophet comes from Timbuktu to tell you your problem. Otherwise, you ain't going to tell anybody your problem. It really stymies what God wants to do. Eh? What are we talking about here? We are saying that the flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. When the spirit gives life, may my pride and ego not get in the way. Because it's timey is what the spirit of God wants to do. Does he give up? No. He keeps working at it. But sometimes in my attempt to preserve my dignity, I choose not to be transparent. Because I don't want anybody the spirit of God sends to help me. I want it to be from outside when nobody knows me. 
Pastors have this problem. Fortunately, I don't. But many of us do. Let's take, move on from pride. Any questions on this? Any, sorry, go ahead. The last one. Yeah. In many cultures and in many of our lives today, there is this attempt to preserve or present a form of dignity that is exterior and so our lives are not transparent. So if the Spirit of God ever wants to help us, He is not able to because you will not open your life to anybody. So the only way we will be helped is if Eddie comes from South Africa, but now we know Eddie too well too. So it will have to be somebody else. Someone who we don't know who comes from very far, that is the only way we'll accept it. And we'll only accept it if the person does it properly. Otherwise we are not willing to. Very difficult like that to change. It's dignity preserving pride. It's not transparency. The next one which is a common one which we often refer to in this church. Next hindrance is thinking or mindsets. And I'll tell you what this church would have a problem with. One, reality causes us to opt for common sense instead of the spirit. We're talking about things that block the desire of the spirit in my life. One of them I'm finding in my life is my thinking and mindset. And this sometimes so affects me where reality strikes and reality then forces me to opt for common sense. Yesterday we were sitting with Mark and he was telling us how he hasn't found a place. And I was struggling, should I tell him about other ways of doing things? Because common sense sometimes rears up its ugly head. Because reality is so strong that you want to come up with common sense. And in the presence you block the work of the spirit. That's one of the things that will happen in this church. And remember, common sense will always try to massage things, manipulate things, take shortcuts. Because that's what common sense does. It tries to achieve an end through any means that is mostly legitimate. And so the spirit is opted out. Another mindset that we will struggle with here is our experience and our environment that we grow up in. That affects our thinking. I see that in many of us. You're so scared to let go of your way of thinking. Because if you let go of it, your whole world will collapse. Because you've been thinking like that for so many years. That if you stop thinking like that, you would have to start again. And so you don't want to let go of it. Frightening, huh? I remember when I thought women could not teach. I remember when I thought that... um, Tongues need not be interpreted. I remember when I thought that um, women were not supposed to be in any kind of ministry. And even though people would bring up evidence from the Bible to show me, I would resist it because so much of my uh, way of functioning was built on it that if I agreed with you, I'd have to break down many things I believe to start again. And I can't afford that. Pardon? Pardon? Because if I, I knew I was kind of beginning to sound wrong, but I had to hold on to it. Because if I let it go, everything collapses. May I suggest to you, that many of you, many of you, and I'm looking at you, I'm not even avoiding looking at you. Many of you have a thinking or a mindset that has been a product of your environment and your experience. Terrible as it may have been. That if you let go of the way you're functioning, your whole world would collapse. And so you have to hold on to it. And the Holy Spirit wants to change that. But if you don't let go of it, 
how is it possible for him to begin to work? Will he keep doing what he's doing? Yes. Is this message a way of letting you know? Yes. It is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. It is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. You know that, right? He doesn't take over my will. Let's go on to the next one. Oh, the third one that affects my mindset is what you think and say. What you think about me. What you think about me. Affects my way of thinking. Like I go some places and I know they have a poor opinion of me. So when I go to a place where they have poor opinion of me, what's my mindset? That I have to do everything to now impress them. Why don't I impress you? Because you have a decent opinion of me. And you like me. So therefore, a little bit. And therefore, I have no uh, no desire to impress you. I don't have to prove anything. But what if I go into a place where people don't have a good opinion of me? Immediately my thinking, my mindset, everything I do is now with this one thing in mind. I have to do everything in my mind to impress these people. What if I'm with somebody who has a tendency to make fun of me or to pull me down? Everything I do will either be very jokey because I want to be the center of laughter and the reason for the party or I'll be super careful because I don't want to be embarrassed or humiliated by this person. When I'm around that person, I'm walking on eggshells. What if you're an angry person who loses your temper quickly? Again, my thinking and my mindset changes. What if you're a suspicious person? Guys, you and I have no idea how much this is. Our, our lives are influenced by the kind of people that we are around. And how other people's lives are influenced by the kind of person you are. My sister recently told me that, Jacob, you're losing your temper too quickly. I'm beginning to walk on eggshells around you. And so, five minutes later, I sent her this thing. I said, I'm, I don't like who I'm becoming. Uh, I apologize. Your motives and intents were absolutely clean. But uh, I should not have lost my temper. And I'm sorry. I will try not to make it ha- let it happen again. Our thinking and our mindset is so influenced by the people around us. This is why the Spirit of God, I need Him desperately. Because He's the only one who can give me some kind of an identity, knowing how I am thought of in heaven. It affects who I am on earth. And then I am able to stand before you, even when you are angry, even when you are putting guilt on me, even when you offend me. This whole loving kindness things can begin to flow. I must have this. I must have this. I, how else will I live, guys, the way Jesus wants me to? It's impossible. To be able to go and stand with someone who may hurt you, or who may get angry, and yet function joyfully. Ah. I so wish I could be joyful with everybody. Next one. Four hindrances, two are done, two more to go. Next one. This blocks the work of the Holy Spirit in me. Self-sufficiency. How do I define self-sufficiency? Successful living spawned by Self-generated, self-reliant skills and methods. That's how I'm defining self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is successful living spawned by self-generated and self-reliant skills and methods. Isn't there a place for that though? Yes, there is. But because we are trying to swing the pendulum to the extreme, I'm saying the flesh profits for 
nothing. The spirit gives life. Where this becomes a very secondary thing in my life. I've read this to you before um, when I taught you taught about Yahweh Ezer. I'm reading it again. As long as I have a self-righteous idea that I can do this thing if God will help me. God will allow me to go on till I break the neck of my ignorance over some obstacle. Listen to it again. eh? Sounds so right and yet it's wrong. As long as I have a self-righteous idea that I can do this thing if God will help me. That is such a Christian way of going about things. As long as I have a self-righteous idea, Hi, As long as I have a self-righteous idea that I can do a thing if God will help me. That's how we normally think, eh? that I can do this thing. Father, could you help me? As long as I have a self-righteous idea that I can do a thing if God helps me, God will allow me to go on till I break my neck of ignorance on some obstacle. The point being, self-generated, self-reliant skills and methods are what we do things with and we ask God to help it. That's not the way. The flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. It's the way to go, guys. And the thing with self-sufficiency, guys, is whenever you're a self-centered person, know that time will be your enemy. It will never be your ally. As in, remember when Saul was told by Samuel in 1 Samuel 10, Hey, Saul, make sure that you wait seven days before you offer the sacrifice. I will come and offer the sacrifice. But when you are a self-centered person, what happens is, when pressures begin to come, you cannot wait for God's agent. You have to take it into your own hands. So it says in 1 Samuel 13.8, Saul could not wait longer. It was the seventh day he offered the sacrifice. And along comes Samuel and says, I hear the bleating of goats. No, I hear the bleating of goats. What happened here? Whenever you are a self-centered person, this is a good way to measure it. eh? How often time is not your ally when you are not dependent on God. Time is an enemy when you are dependent on God. Because the pressure of time begins to work. This blocks the work of the Spirit in you, eh? This blocks the work of the Spirit in you. Any questions before we go on to the last one? I agree. So, I'm just swinging the pendulum to the other extreme, Matt, because... Doing nothing is not usually what we do. We, most of us in this church are people who want to take things and do them. So I'm just swinging the pendulum to the other extreme, where uh, let's learn that other way of not being successful based on self-generated, self-reliant skills and methods. Because the flesh profits nothing and the spirit gives life. Let's start at that end. Our skills and methods and doing things comes natural to us as humans, which is why Jesus had to continuously say, enter into rest, cease from striving. Because he knows that man's, dis- man's way of doing things is to work, work, work. Any other questions? I was telling Mark yesterday, Matt, that uh, perhaps the only guy who can beat him in terms of hard work would be you. He's the kind of guy who would do the grouse grind three times in one day. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's the kind of guy who would do it too. His his greatest pleasures are swimming with salmon upstream. And he was getting poetic about it as as Jason and I listened. And Jason and I tried to pretend that we were impressed. But it just didn't work. So, I'm glad that he's working with Jason and not me, when he comes. No, because it was just three days ago when he called me on the phone and spoke to me for 45 minutes. Uh, Five minutes had to do with the real content of the subject. 40 minutes was spent on telling me how to set up a trail camera to catch deer. Yeah. This is on tape now, it will go all over the world, Mark.
My name is Jason. Okay. <laughs> the last one is willing obedience. Guys, my emphasis is on this word, eh? Willing. Isaiah 119 has this marvelous line. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land or the good of the land. If you are willing and obedient. One of the hindrances or one of the things that blocks the work of the Spirit in my life is um, uh, sometimes obedience I can give, but willingness um, only comes through relationship. And relationship only comes through prayer. And prayer is basically conversations that deepen the father-son. I'm talking about God now. Father-son intimacy. So the emphasis is on willing. And willingness only comes from relationship. Relationship can be only forged when one has a conversation where intimacy develops. Which brings us back to this whole thing of... Uh, and when I say the word prayer, it brings up this connotation of asking and, and ACTS, adoration, this thing, this thing, this thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, having a conversation with God and it begins to increase my relationship because it's a two-way street and I begin to hear and I marvel at who He is and therefore the willingness of my heart increases. Joyful willingness is such an integral part of obedience. And when the Spirit of God sees joyful willingness in you because of a relationship you have with the Father, His work is hindered less. His work begins to flow. Because there's a Reckless yielding. A much loved child. Uh, I said this last week. It's such a cool line. I really don't know who said it. So I can't give credit right now. But the line there says. The best people. The best Christians I have known. Are Christians who live. Like much loved children. Wow. The best Christians I have known. Are Christians who live. Like much loved children. Much loved children. What a, what, what, a, what a definition of a Christian. A much loved child, recklessly abandoned. This is not you and me yet. This is not you and me yet. James 4, 6 says, The Spirit of God that He has caused to live in me yearns for me jealously. Yearns for me jealously. Willing obedience. Any questions, guys? Any questions? Okay.